Are you ready for an interview with creative people too? Carolina. It's Carolina Stories. All right, giddy up. Welcome to the first episode of Carolina Stories. I'm Steve Vafier, and our guest today is Josh Glover. Josh is currently the Chief Revenue Officer at Encino here in Wilmington, North Carolina. He's a Marine Corps veteran and a family man through and through. He's somebody I have a ton of respect for, and I always learn a lot from our conversations. This was my first ever podcast interview, and to be honest, I wasn't very good. Luckily, Josh carries the conversation, and there are some incredible takeaways and lessons learned throughout. Let's dig in. So, Josh, I'd love to start by framing the conversation with your path to the Naval Academy. I mean, what kind of drove your desire to pursue that track? Yep, I had a, I had a great experience in high school there and read uh, a book called Fields of Fire uh, by Jim Webb, who is a Vietnam veteran. He's a Naval Academy grad, and he's had a life of, of public service even after uh, his, his time in uniform. Uh, Fields of Fire is a is a fantastic book, and there's a lieutenant in the book. And uh, I just I looked at how he led his Marines. I looked at how they spoke about him and uh, the decisions he had to make, and the opportunities that he had to 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 lead these young Americans hand on hands on. And I decided that's what I wanted to do. So um, that, that's kind of the path that I took. Applied to the Naval Academy. I was fortunate enough to get in, and after four years there, was commissioned as a Marine officer. And so, what were some of the characteristics that um that were portrayed in that book that really resonated with you in addition to the kind of the leadership aspects? Uh, Lieutenant Hodges is his name, and he, he led from the front. Um, he, he was uh, tactically and technically um, credible, right? He, he knew what he was talking about. So um, when you see a, a platoon receive a new leader in combat, and, and all eyes are on him, and in his first gunfight, he does well. And afterwards, the Marines are talking amongst one another and essentially saying, you know, this guy knows his stuff. We're going to be okay. And there's just, just such an awesome uh, proving ground for a leader uh-huh. to show up, take over an organization that's combat experienced and you're brand new to the fight. Uh, and you do well because you've studied and you've, you've learned, and you've applied, you understand the basics. You can, you can apply them in a high-stress situation. Uh, to me, that's, you know, the ultimate, um, the ultimate test as a leader. And uh, it just seemed like an awesome challenge. So this was – I graduated high school in 97. So this was the 90s. It was, you know, relatively uh, soon after the Gulf War, mm-hmm. but a long time since any protracted uh, conflict. Uh, at that time, probably couldn't have foreseen that we would we would still be at, at a time of war, or that we would still have, um, you know, people deployed. Um, and, and that, that, but that's what put me on my on my journey. Got it. And gr- growing up in kind of various athletic and academic pursuits, were you always a natural leader? I don't know that I, I buy into the idea of a natural leader. I think I, w- I wanted to be a leader. I think it's something you work at and, mm-hmm. and you learn, and it's a constant process. Um, so whether that's you know being a leader on the on the athletic fields or in student government or in extracurriculars in school, um, I always kind of raised my hand and, and just figured that was something I wanted to learn how to do, right? And, and just like anything, you get repetitions under your belt. Um, you make some, some mistakes, right? Hopefully not too big of mistakes, but you make them and you learn and you get better. Um, just, just like anything else, I think it's, it's more of a practice than something you're born with. So. Great. Okay, so then you go off to the Naval Academy. I mean, how was that experience compared to your expectations? It was fantastic, uh, and it's just because of the people I was surrounded with. You, you, you know, you, the majority of your class are high school lettermen or student body president, things like that, and, and it's just a, a great group of people. Um, and whenever you can surround yourself with great people like that, 
in an environment where you have to hustle to keep up, you're going to grow. So for me, it was a tremendous blessing. Um, and many of my best friends are, are the, the guys that I uh, went to the academy with. Um, the trade-off from that is that they're, they're scattered, scattered to the winds. You know, you don't, you know, it's not like a, a local university where you have your, your frat brothers that you live in the same town with. These, 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 uh, these guys are literally all over the globe. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm thrilled to have friends like that. And so for me, it was a, it was a great experience. The academics were uh, top-notch, the, just the overall. Um, uh, couldn't imagine a better way to spend my college years. So from an outside perspective, I would imagine that um, it's pretty demanding, not only physically, but also mentally and emotionally. Um, can you talk to me about your daily mindset and how you persevered, or did it not feel challenging when you were going through it? It's, it's, it's not your average college experience, and there's trade-offs uh, for sure. I think uh, because the academics are pretty intense and, and you, know, you don't have a lot of free time, uh, you miss out a lot of the, the weekends, social stuff, your early years that, that you would have if you went to a normal college. Uh, what I learned there is when you start it and you look at the four-year trajectory of the Naval Academy experience, it can be really daunting that, man, this is going to be hard work for four years. But when you peel it back and you say, you know, your, your first year is a little bit more intense year, um, I, I have to make it through the first year. And then you peel it back and you say, you know, can I get to Thanksgiving break? And as if you keep doing that and you take that daunting four-year trajectory and you break it into bite-sized chunks, at the end of the day, you just have to get through today and do really well and you wake up tomorrow, tomorrow and do the best that you can. So for me, that's been a huge uh, takeaway is whether it's growing a company or um, getting through the first year of parenthood or, or whatever the challenge is. If you step back and you look at the, the, the big challenge, it can seem daunting, but I'm gonna bet on myself that I can always do really well today. I can get through these short-term milestones and, and kind of bite that up into a, a less daunting chunk. Absolutely. And then so you graduate in May of 2001, correct? That's correct. And so you join the Marines. Um, so this is a few months before 9-11. In the aftermath of those attacks, when it became pretty apparent that we were going to be going to war, I mean, did your mindset shift at all? Um, I think... I, I wouldn't say my mindset, mindset shifted. Um, it, I just think for all of us it became very real, right? I was in Quantico, Virginia, about 30 miles south of the, the Pentagon on 9-11, on and I was in a class where they're teaching how to be a lieutenant of Marines, and um, it quickly went from the philosophical to the real, where we you know, quickly understood that we would probably be leading troops in combat. Um, so I'm grateful for the timing. I'm, I'm grateful um, that I had an opportunity to, to actually do the job, right, in, in a real-world setting. Um, but for us, I think it was very real. So, look, it's an environment where you work hard anyway, um, and you're always going to pay attention in class because it's important. But when you understand that you're probably going to be leading an infantry platoon and into into combat, uh, it just makes the, those classes that much more um, important on a daily basis, right? For sure. So you were deployed to Iraq a few times, and you won a Silver Star Medal for your bravery and heroics um, in 2004 during combat. And so can you tell me about that day and that battle in Fallujah? Yeah, that was my second deployment to Iraq. I led a, a mobile assault platoon that worked as the, the quick reaction force for the battalion. Um, in, in kind of civilian terms, you have uh, normally in a, in a combat unit, you'll have some kind of unit that's the swing unit that might not be on the line or have um, be tied up with a specific task, but if you need to surge them somewhere to help out, um, you can to help out the main effort. So for us, uh, as the, the quick reaction force, um, there's kind of two parts to that day. Uh, the first day is that uh, an Air Force helicopter was shot down south of uh, Fallujah, about 13 kilometers, and we were sent down there. Um, the uh, the passengers had already been 
taken off the helicopter and sent to get medical care. But there was some equipment on the helicopter that we needed to get off. So we went down that evening, um, got the equipment off, and uh, set up security around the helicopter. And then um, in the morning, um, uh, we received pretty heavy mortar fire um, as we left the site to head back to Fallujah, uh, experienced a pretty pretty large and protracted ambush that, that, that we fought our way through. Um, the course of doing that had a large number of Marines uh, wounded, um, had one, one Marine who, who, who didn't make it out of that gunfight. Um, then we made it back to, to the city of Fallujah, fixed our vehicles up, um, got the Marines who were wounded too seriously to continue fighting the medical care. Um, those of us who were lightly wounded uh, got patched up so we could get back in the fight because this is still pretty early in the, in the Fallujah um, experience, and, and we were really busy. Then that evening, uh, a, a adjacent unit from within our battalion, uh, one of the, the rifle companies, um, had an am- amphibious assault vehicle that was a- attacked and isolated out in the middle of the city. Um, and had a, a platoon of Marines that were surrounded. Uh, their lieutenant was very seriously injured, and uh, those Marines were in a in a very tough situation. Um, literally, you know, throwing grenades back over walls at insurgents. Um, and when we got there, uh, they were they were down in some situations. The last few rounds in their magazine. So uh, we we had teamed up with a, a platoon of tanks and fought out to get to their location. Um, helped get their casualties out of there via some of my vehicles um, and then got their their uh, amphibious assault vehicle or Amtrak, dragged it back within friendly lines. Um, that's summarizing a few hours of activity. Um, but, you know, in those situations, you get to see um, you get to see how how hard combat can be, but you really get to see how good people can be. Um, and there's more uh, examples than I could I could describe in a podcast just in that day of of, of young men. Uh, putting others' lives in, ahead of theirs, um, of them doing tasks um, under gunfight. We, we had never trained to, to run along a platoon of tanks through an urban environment and, and, and fight in a situation like that. But we had a really good uh, non-commissioned officers. Uh, we had really good unit cohesion, and we had brilliance in the basics, right? The men can shoot, move, communicate, and medicate. And because we had really focused on brilliance in the basics and training, making them very comfortable moving together under fire, making them very comfortable with their primary and secondary weapon systems, uh, making them very comfortable communicating and flexing in a fluid situation, teaching them the basics of medical care. Uh, They were able to take those brilliance in the basics uh, skills and apply them in a scenario that we had never trained in. And then then in that scenario, which is under some of the most um, probably intense um, uh, conditions that I I experienced before, before combat deployments, um, they're able to fight like heroes. So for me, um, I, I wouldn't call that my, my medal. Um, and, and I think getting that has been one of the most humbling things that's ever happened to me. Uh, I would say I'm a steward of that for those young men mm-hmm. um, because ultimately I didn't get it because of anything specifically that I personally did. Uh, I think I did it because we had a great team um, that, that had trained hard and that rose to the occasion. Absolutely. During the course of those 24 hours, um, what are you feeling? I mean, obviously a ton of adrenaline, but is it fear-based or is, um, does the training just kind of kick in and you're just focused on the task at hand? You know, I think a, a combat leader has to be able to compartmentalize uh, a lot uh, without losing their compassion and without losing um, um, their, um, their empathy for, for the men. So in the morning, we had probably about a third of my platoon wounded. 
Um, I mentioned earlier, but uh, we did we did have one Marine who who didn't who didn't make it to that gunfight, and that was the first that was the first Marine that I ever lost in combat. And for a young leader who uh, since eighteen, I dedicated myself to training Marines to hopefully bring them home. Uh, that's pretty life changing. Uh, but the the needs the needs of the the organization, and the reality that you're you're in the middle of Fallujah fighting don't change. So for me, um, between the morning and the afternoon, it kind of hit me that 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 I had failed to bring that young Marine home. Um, at the same point, uh, I had an opportunity that evening to go to go help other Marines. Right. So for me as a leader, my job at that point. Um, is to do the best I can to help those young men. And now I see them. Uh, and what's so cool about social media that our generations of veterans, and it's easy to malign social media, mm-hmm. um, and it's deserved because it's a huge waste of time. Um, <laughs> but there's days where you sit back and you think about um, your, your failures or you think about uh, the times when you weren't able to, to bring someone back. Um, but I can see these, these young men, and they have kids, right, and they're leaders in their communities. Uh, they're great dads. And it's a good reminder that um, look, that was a, a, a catastrophically hard morning. Um, but at the same point, um, my job that afternoon is, is to focus on what I could control and get back out there and do my best uh, for the organization. Um, so I think, I think part of the challenge in, in the middle of it all is to compartmentalize, uh, but to be a whole person. And for me now, um, it's what been it's 20, it's 16 years later, right? For me to be a good husband and a good dad, um, you can't keep those things packed up forever, right? Because eventually they come out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's kind of the art, right? And I think some of us are are, are, are uh, equipped to do that, right? Some of us can learn to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you kind of asked about that day, the feelings. Um, man, it's really hard. Uh, at the same point, I, I've got to cowboy up and get out there and, and do the best I can because mm-hmm. I raised my hand to be a leader, and they're going to depend on me to get them through that evening, right? So I don't know if that answers your question. I kind of bounced around, but... No, it was fantastic, and I really appreciate all the yeah. candor. Um, and, I, and I would say to that, one thing I learned is uh, Colonel Fred Padilla was our, um, sorry for interrupting you, yeah. Colonel Fred Padilla was our, our colonel um, during my first deployment to Iraq. Um, and uh, the, the first American killed in Iraq was, was a lieutenant named Shane Childers, who I was in Quantico with as a young lieutenant when I was getting my initial training. And uh, Shane, Shane was the first American to, to pass in that war. He died in the southern Ramallah oil fields in, uh, in Iraq on the first night of the war in 2003. And um, he, he, was, he was my buddy, right? I mean, there's, there's nine rifle platoon commanders in an infantry battalion, and I was one of the nine, and so was Shane. Mm-hmm. So uh, none of us had experienced um, a loss in combat like that before. And Colonel Padilla pulled the officers aside, and, and his message was very clear. He said, we, we will mourn Shane later. But now we owe it to him to go out and lead these Marines well, right? Mm-hmm. And that's something that I took through through all four of my combat deployments. Is that um, it's not insensitive. Um, it's not. Um, it's not that you don't care. It's that if I had been one of the nine who didn't come back, I would have really hoped the other eight would step up to the challenge, do their best to bring those young Americans home, and then more me later. Hundred percent. So we've touched on leadership a lot already, and I think it'll be a continuing theme throughout this conversation. What does leadership mean to you? A few things. I think leadership at its core, I think, means uh, leaving a legacy. And part of that is from my background in the service uh, where, especially in a combat uh, organization, you're trained to think that there may be that situation where um, things don't shake out in your favor and and you don't make it 
to a fight and you're always challenged to look at your team and say, if, if I don't make it to this fight, could the organization still functions? So on a daily basis, you're investing yourself in the next level of leadership and the next level below that um, to where they can step up. So you're always kind of training, training your organization uh, in a manner to where you hope you're working yourself out of a job, right? Mm -hmm. um, so for me, I think that investment in next level leaderships, um, I mean, I'm in software now, right? So, I mean, I'm, I'm going to make it to the meeting. Um, at the same point, uh, we're going to grow, right? And I'm going to uh, I'm going to get new challenges, right? The people below me are going to get new challenges, and the real um, reality there is that I always need to be. I need to get to the day. I need to get to the meeting. I need to hit the numbers. But ultimately, I really need to invest in that next level of leadership to where they can step up and grow. So, for me. Um, that's the difference between leadership and management, right? Mm -hmm. A manager would make sure the team hits the numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a leader will make sure the team hits the numbers then has the next next level ready to step up and take on more responsibility and, and, and ultimately leave behind a better organization than they inherited. How did the Naval Academy and the Marines help you develop and cultivate those skills? I just think it is part of it's part of the part of the culture. Yeah. Uh, the Naval Academy that you'll you hear all the time, ship ship bait self and those are your priorities, right? The organization comes first, then my buddy, then me. And, uh, you know, you're 18 years old, and they, they do a good job of pounding that stuff into you. That's just part of the ethos. Um, the Marine Corps has a, a saying that I love. Uh, it's officers eat last, and, and it's just a big piece of the culture. And I think so there's been some business books that have kind of taken that. Um, but but ultimately, uh, you make sure the most junior person is taken care of, and then, all, you know, on up, right? Uh, and if you do that, um, I think I think that just sends, that sends a big message. Yeah. Any um, mentors or... Um other Marines that you served with that um, embody leadership and that you could give an example of? Oh, so many. And yeah. that, that's, that's the real blessing of that experience is, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to have those kinds of leaders. Um, one individual that, that I've always thought was really special is a gentleman named Doug Zimbeck. Um, I met him on the battlefield in Fallujah during my second combat deployment, and we just hit it off. And it's kind of like, you know, like, like-minded guys and uh, kept in touch. Uh, he tracked me down after after the deployment, and we just kept in touch. And I, I never I never was in the same unit with him. I never worked for him, um, but he was a captain. I was a lieutenant, and and he helped me grow. And he helped me um, navigate some pretty big career decisions in uniform. Uh, he advocated for me um, to get in get some opportunities, um, and and he just invested himself in me. And so he he was he was my mentor, and you know I was his mentee. Um, and he ultimately passed in combat. And since then, that was uh, that was more than ten years ago. I've met I don't know how many how many guys that have said, "Man, Doug was my mentor. He invested in me." And you know, it's like when someone has twenty best friends, mm -hmm. right? And everyone you meet was mentored by Doug. You, Doug, you realize this guy, like he really poured his life out, right? And he really invested himself in, in, in all of us. Um, because how do you have time and energy for that? You know what I mean? But you, you know those kind of people, yeah. right? They're like everyone's best friend is because they're just focused on everyone else. and They're helping them grow. Right. Um, at least 20 guys I met being like, man, Doug really mentored me. He spent time with me. And I was like, man, you know, that's awesome. Right. <laughs> and, uh, because, because he, he found every opportunity he could to find people he thought had potential and help him grow mm -hmm. and, and ultimately invest himself in them. Very cool. And so during this time, I mean, were you thinking about your career plan? I mean, did you envision yourself eventually transitioning into the private sector? 
I joined the military uh, when I was inducted to the Naval Academy in the summer of 97. I graduated in 2001. If you had asked me then, I would have said I would serve honorably, honorably for five years, um, try to be a Marine Infantry Officer, do my best, and then reevaluate it, and probably go do something. At that point, mm-hmm. there, there was no war, and I, I kind of thought I would get out and pursue something in the private sector. Um, then the war happened, and everything changed. And I met my, my wife, Heather, who's um, uh, been everything to me. I met her as a senior at the Naval Academy. And that's kind of what I told her. It's like, look, we're going to do this, right? Maybe go move to California or go live overseas, do something cool, and then figure it out and, you know, tackle the private sector. But then the war happened, and I kind of realized um, after my first and second deployment, um, I kind of came in because of of service and um, citizenship and defending the country. After those first couple deployments, I realized I was going to stay because of the guys, right? And you have this opportunity. Um, you've worked hard. You've been trained to do something. And, and you say, look, I, the big picture, and, and you can argue about the politics, and you can argue about the why, but if those young men are going to go to war, I can positively influence them, and I can advocate for them, and I can lead them well. I, I just felt that's where I needed to be. So after my, uh, my second deployment extended to do a third deployment to Iraq, um, that was the Ramadi deployment. Um, and then even realized after that that I just I, I wasn't done and that if I could go uh, wear the uniform, um, share the risk with the men, uh, do my best to lead them well, uh, that I was going to go do that. Mm-hmm. Was it 2010 or 2011 that you were medically retired? Yeah. So I was uh, my fourth combat deployment was with Marine Special Operations. Uh, I was a team leader with 2nd Raider Battalion. I was wounded in November 2009 uh, pretty seriously. Um, I, I'd, I'd been wounded a couple times before. Um, but this is one where I actually had to, you know, leave the unit and go spend some time at Walter Reed. I was there um, kind of in and out of Walter Reed for about a year, mm-hmm. um, had, had, had a good number of surgeries, um, had to have my leg rebuilt. Um, and the tail end of that, uh, the Marine Corps would have let me stay in uniform because the Marine Corps is good about uh, not pushing people out mm-hmm. uh, of, the, of the service. But I, I wasn't physically in a spot where I could s- still share the risk with my organization. Um, and I just felt like just as I knew after uh, my Iraq deployments, I needed to stay and, and, and try to do the job a little bit longer. Um, I just came to realize that if I couldn't, if I couldn't really um, do what I had done, if I couldn't fully lead from the front, uh, that it was the right thing for me to go ahead and move on. So mm-hmm. I was medically retired in the fall of 2011. Got it. Um, and how was the transition to the private sector? Any unexpected challenges that, um, that came up? It was horrifying. Um, <laughs> it was so scary. It's scarier than getting shot at because, uh, you know, you go through the Naval Academy and the Marine Corps training and you spend all this time in this culture and, and you understand what skills you have. You understand they apply. You understand, you understand roughly what your career trajectory is going to be. Right? I'm going to be first, second lieutenant, first lieutenant, captain major. Private sector, there's no playbook. So it, it just wasn't something that I had really exposure to. Um, so I looked at a lot of different options, um, ended up uh, deciding to pursue uh, my, my uh, MBA on the weekends uh, via the GI Bill, which is a fantastic pro- program in the country uh, gave to us. I'm very grateful for it. Um, not because I wanted the, the transformative MBA experience that you see a lot of people um, you know, talk about. I was, I was 33. I had my first, first kid. I had a second on the way. Uh, for me, I wanted to understand uh, the academic frameworks and the, just the building blocks of how to business run, right? How do, how do I read a balance sheet? Um, how do I think about capital, right? What does debt to a, do to a business, et cetera? Um, so I, I, I took a, the weekend MBA program at, at Duke 
and that I was blessed with an opportunity at Live Oak Bank here in Wilmington um, to, to join their bank. They're, they're pretty early on um, and they had a really entrepreneurial vibe. Um, having been an early member, um, not a founder, but an early member at, at an organization in the Marine Corps, I knew that I like entrepreneurship. I think um, there's a lot of growth that can come with that, right? There's a lot of opportunity. Uh, for me, I was 33, just starting my career. I wanted to, I wanted a place where I could, I could grow really quickly, uh, maybe good, good opportunities quickly. And entrepreneurship uh, felt like a good fit. So I took the job at the bank. I was there for a year, and then they spun out in Sino. And uh, the CEO Pierre Nade came in, um, hit it off with him. Pierre's a fantastic leader, uh, big personality had a real vision, and uh, Pierre gave me an opportunity to move from the bank to Encino. So I joined there uh, roughly six months in, uh, and I've been there ever since, so about seven and a half years now. So for somebody who's never heard of Encino, can you describe kind of what the software does? So cloud, cloud-based bank operating system um, that allows financial institutions to, to lend money and take deposits uh, more effectively, more efficiently. That brings all the stakeholders across the value chain, front, middle, back office, together in one place, connects them with a customer via secure digital portal, and um, essentially helps them modernize and, and, and optimize the experience they provide to their customers. Got it. And so as a consumer, how might I touch this software? I mean, so if I go and open up a deposit account or I try to take out a loan, I mean, um, will I be interacting with the software or how will it Im- improve my customer experience? Yeah, and what's exciting is that you will interact with it, but you'll be interacting it with it in the same system where the banker does. Mm-hmm. Um, so for a deposit account, you might you might totally open that deposit account um, and, and a banker won't touch it at all, right? You have a digital experience on your mobile or on your, on your, on your laptop. Uh, you open your deposit account. We have a customer that uh, jokes their, their people can open a, a deposit account faster and you can order a Big Mac, right? Three minutes, 57 <laughs> seconds. Uh, we love to hear stats like that because it quantifies the impact we have for our customers. So in those scenarios, the banker doesn't have to touch it. If you're a small business owner, you want to get some capital to continue growing your business, you might apply for a loan via, via one of our uh, customer engagement solutions. But then that lo- loan goes into the underwriting process. Um, it's a streamlined experience because no one's taking your loan application and manually typing it into another system. Um, it kind of goes end to end from the time you apply that all the way through underwriting, through approving that loan, through funding it um, on Encino. So what that does for you, A, you get a better experience because a lot of small business owners can't even apply for that loan digitally because their banks don't have that technology. But you get a more efficient experience because the bankers are all on one secure end to end platform where they can get you uh, get you decisions faster and get your money because what we really learned especially in that scenario small business owner they want a great digital experience what they really care about is getting the notification for the banker that yes i'm gonna gonna lend you some capital and then they want to know when they're going to get their cash and everything else is kind of window dressing (laughs) so uh, we give them the ability to apply for the loan easily they get a they get a quick yes and then they get their cash quickly and if we can do that you know people talk about take care of your customers, customer experience. Um, that's the ultimate value for that banker to add to that customer, right? Is yes, we find you credit worthy. We're going to fulfill your request to get capital so you can make payroll, so you can expand your business, so you can buy some new equipment. And we said, we said we're going to close it on Friday, and we did, right? Which a lot of customers don't really have. And so you transitioned from Live Oak to Encino about six months in after the company spun out. What was your initial role at Encino? I, w- I was a project manager. I had used the application as a relationship manager 
and it was just the software that I used uh, to take care of uh, take care of my customers. So I was a project manager, and I help I help people make that transition from manual processes or from legacy systems onto Encino, uh, which is a big learning curve for me. I mean, if you think about um, my background as a special operations and infantry officer, uh, going to managing banks digital transformation is not necessarily a logical path, uh, but it actually, uh, for me, um, it, it, it felt pretty familiar because it was an entrepreneurial environment. Mm -hmm. What I learned in, in the Marine Corps, even in, even in an old established organization, in a combat uh, crew, you're always building teams, right? You're always tackling new problems. I learned if you show up and you're, you're, you're a young leader or you're new and inexperienced, um, just to show up and take a rock out of someone's pack, right? And it might, it might be a big rock, it might be a small rock, right? It might be in your job description or it might not. Um, but if you can help other people out, um, when you're new, you're going to learn something no matter what, right? It, it might not be a lesson you thought you would learn. But if you show up and you look for work and you say, look, how can I help? How can I add value? You're going to move forward. And then reputationally inside your organization, you're going to be known as someone who shows up to help, right? And never saying that's not my job. Um, so for me, I, I, loved, I loved the first couple of years. People think I'm crazy when I say that because it's brutally hard. And, you know, you just raise money and you're, you're trying to navigate the, getting companies off the ground. Uh, but for me, it's like you could, you could close your eyes and walk around and you just run into a problem. You can help someone solve <laughs> because it's, that's entrepreneurship. Yeah. So for me, that was a lot of fun. Absolutely. And it's a good segue. Um, so you start as a project manager. How does somebody transition from a project management role to um, kind of leading the sales organization and becoming chief revenue officer? There, there's two aspects. Um, I think what, what Pierre would tell you uh, if you were here is, first of all, an enterprise sale is, is a project, right? We have to get through due diligence. We have to make sure we have funding. We have to make sure we understand what has to happen to, to actually get a signature. Um, so that's one aspect is that just there's a structure and an organization that I think probably my military background and then my project management experience gave and that, you know, I, I have to hit certain wickets or I'm not, these banks are not going to make these big investments. So I think that's probably one aspect. Um, the other that, that, that Pierre has always said is that uh, in, in legacy software, um, that there, there's a lot of uh, wreckage from misset expectations up front. So he wanted someone who had used the application, who had actually implemented the application to be telling that story up front. So, so we could give customers accurate expectations, establish a good footprint with them, with successful projects, and then continue to deepen those relationships over time. Mm -hmm. And how has the company evolved over the past eight years? I mean, since the first day you joined um, to today? Um, I, I'm, I'm really honored to have been part of the journey. Um, we had 23 people when I joined. Uh, we worked out of a kind of a sublet office space over in the middle of, middle of Wilmington. Um, now we have uh, over 900 employees, um, over 1,100 customers, seven offices in five countries, and, um, and uh, continue to focus on our, our vision of transforming uh, the industry. Very cool. And so you have this fast-growing, highly disruptive software company. I wouldn't have expected it to emerge in Wilmington of all places. Um, so can you tell me how that happened? Yeah, Wilmington's an actual place. Uh, you know, that's, uh, we meet people from you know the San Francisco, New York. They say Wilmington, what Delaware, where all the credit card companies are. Or, uh, no, this is a fantastic uh, town. Uh, you could split the numbers: 150, 200,000 people. Um, you have the second largest university in the UNC uh, school system is here in town, and you have really smart students who've gotten into a great uh, university. They see the natural beauty, the quality of life here, but they, they have always historically assumed when I graduate, 
I'm going to work hard in school so I can go get a job in Atlanta or New York or uh, Charlotte because you can't really find a job here, right? I mean, that was all the always the expectation. Um, so it's been a lot of fun to to, to build build a, a great company in this town. I, I gave you the numbers, you know, 900 employees. Most of them are here at headquarters in a town of um, 200,000. I, I can't go to my kid's soccer game or go to the grocery store without running into someone from the Encino family. And, and that's, that's been really special. So it's been a journey. I mean, building a cloud computing company in a little town like this by the coast, um, I think it probably took more work up front um, but I think it's put us in a better space uh, because ultimately uh, we had to start off, we had to market not, not the company and the job opportunities. We had to market Wilmington as a destination mm-hmm. um, to employees. But now we have fantastic people coming from Atlanta, Silicon Valley, New York, because uh, maybe they've had some experience, they've done some good stuff, but they want to have like a yard for their mm-hmm. kids, right? And they say, wait, I can still transform an industry. I can do cutting edge uh uh, work on a cutting edge platform, but I can take my kids to the beach seven months out of the year. That's pretty special. Absolutely. There's a lot. That's of- why you ended up here. You're in San Francisco, right? So I was. Why'd you end up here? Um, I mean, it's an amazing town. Well, so I was in a transition from San Francisco to Charlotte. I mean, quality of life, lower cost of living, um, allows me to pursue the various entrepreneurial endeavors that I want to kind mm-hmm. of, um, pursue. And then, my wife and I, we realized we could be anywhere. And so we wanted to live near a beach and it was LA or Wilmington. And um, the cost of living um, kind of trumped the any decision we had. And so um, we moved here about 13 months ago and we just fell in love with it. I mean, I, um, I expected a beach town, it's been so much more. And so we expect to be here for a decade. So I yeah. fully subscribe to all of the things you said about Wilmington. And it's a good, um, a good thread, I mean, Encino and Live Oak, they've created a ton of momentum here. And, um, and I see, I'm very optimistic about this area moving forward. Um, do you share that enthusiasm? And um, what are you optimistic about? And any kind of growth challenges or potential areas for improvement that you see in Wilmington? You drive around town, you see construction everywhere. You know, my kids go to the public school up the road. So, I mean, that means more jobs, that's, you know, more taxes, better education for us. Um, the pretty simple view on it. But, no, there, there, there are great things going on in this town. Um, when I was in the Marine Corps, um, I ended up in Wilmington because uh, Marine Corps Special Operations Organization is headquartered uh, north of here, about 45 minutes, and it's Needs Ferry, and uh, it's kind of equidistant between Wilmington and Jacksonville. We picked Wilmington because that's my, where my wife uh, was able to get a teaching job. And I was a, a Texas kid. My wife's from Arizona. I'd spent my lieutenant time in the infantry on the West Coast, and we came to North Carolina you know, with fingernails scratching a, a path all the way out here because we just didn't know. And uh, the first weekend, we, we went on a buddy's boat. We went to, to brunch at, you know, Boca Bay, and then we had dinner out by the water, and we looked at each other. I mean, this place is amazing, right? And there's no traffic, right? And I can, I can live pretty well here. Um, so for us, uh, at that time, that was 08. I mean, th- there was nothing going on here relative to, relative to business. There are a couple little companies, um, but, but it's growing, right? And I think cloud allows you to do that, where mm-hmm. you, can, you can leverage fantastic technology platforms as long as you have the right people and you retain them, you can build something cool. Mm -hmm. And so shifting back to Encino, you mentioned um, kind of it was a little bit of a challenge to attract talent in the early days. Um, So I want to talk about talent, specifically kind of hiring. Um, How do you think about identifying and assessing talent? Um, Any non-obvious things you've learned in that arena? Uh, We we always say at Encino that we, we hire for attitude and we train for skill. 
because that 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 takes probably takes a little bit longer to ramp someone. If you take someone and they've sold to enterprise organizations, um, they're going to show up and they're going to they're going to run with the ball sooner than someone you have to teach how to do that, right? And we have some fantastic rock stars who have come into the organization as experienced enterprise salespeople and they do a fantastic job and I could not do my job without them. They're really hard to find and it's a really high risk hire because sometimes they don't work out, right? So there's a few names I could list that came to us after great careers in, in sales and they continue to crush it, right? Invaluable members of my team, but there's also some missed hires in there. So I kind of take three three approaches in, in how we grow my organization. One is we find those experienced people and we vet them carefully, we bring them in and they crush it. Um, another is we find people from the industry. Maybe they've uh, been part of banking transformation efforts within a bank. Maybe uh, they've been a banker for a long time, but they have a pretty innovative mind and they want to help change the industry. That's kind of the second profile that we take and then we teach them sales and then we teach them the product and they do great. Um, the other uh, bucket we have, which is, um, from some angles riskier, uh, from some angles, it's not, uh, is what we call athletes. So we just find, uh, maybe someone from consulting and maybe someone from a totally different industry. Um, I, I would say I probably fit into that, that bucket as a transitioning veteran. Um, uh, we're really proud one of our diversity efforts that the country is helping uh, this generation of veterans land in, in good roles and a good industry in the private sector. We take those athletes and we bring them in. Uh, we teach them the product, right? We teach them the process, and uh, we support them from a leadership perspective. That third bucket can be equally high risk, um, but it can also be very high payoff. So uh, one of, a couple of my leaders within my organization have come from that. Um, look, you, you take someone who's transitioning careers completely, especially, you know, they're going from the military to the private sector. they got to make it work. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, they show up, and, and uh, they're coachable. Um, they're supported by good leaders and uh, they grow. So for us, tr train, uh, train for skill, but hire for attitude has mm -hmm. been a good recipe, especially if you're gonna take uh, an atypical approach to where you locate the company. If we're in Atlanta or Silicon Valley, we, may not, we might not have had to take this approach. We'd also have staggering, staggeringly high turnover, right? Mm -hmm. You see technical roles, developers with 30, 35% turnover in some situations. We're much, we're much lower than that because uh, they have a, a growth environment uh, they can they can learn, they can develop, uh, they can get good opportunities as the company adds headcount. They're doing good technology, and they have a fantastic quality of life here in Wilmington. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. It's, um, I think it's one of the big advantages of building a startup in a secondary or tertiary city. The CEO of Shopify based in Ottawa, Canada, I mean, he has this view that where the average tenure in Silicon Valley for an engineer is 18 months or less, and um, when he hires somebody, he's very confident he'll be working with them five, 10 years down the line. Um, and it sounds like at Encino, you have a, a similar um, luxury. And so how are you trying to develop talent? I mean, so once you hire for attitude um, mm -hmm. and, and train skill, I mean, what are you kind of doing to, uh, to develop uh, potential? Uh, yeah, great question. And, and I think, and, and I, I love the Shopify story as well, because like Ottawa, you know what I mean? <laughs> same things people say when they say Wilmington. Um, if you're going to take that approach, it, I think it's feasible. And, and if, if you really think you can transform an industry, it's, it's a great fit. You have to do it with clear eyes, understanding there's more upfront obligation on you uh, to, to train people. There's more upfront obligation on you to continue to develop people and help them grow. 
right? Uh, because you're not taking the experienced person, plug and play, and then move on, right? So you have to you have to have a really thoughtful, structured onboarding program where you teach these people the skills. Um, you have to have the right leaders who understand and are excited by the reality they're going to help develop these people. Um, again, not plug and play, but very high payoff. And then an ongoing basis, you have to have uh, – the the right ongoing support and mentorship for them relative to leadership growth because as i said you know, we started i was employee 23 we're now over 900 uh we do have a culture where we can we promote from within so one thing that we do that's been a big investment that we've made for probably the last four or five years is we have an internal management training program where we have um if you're promoted and you take over a team you go through a six-month program where you learn the basics of management and leadership right how do you coach? How do you give feedback? How do you work with, with your peers? Um, you know, how do you uh, handle difficult situations? How do you talk about compensation? Those are things that I think a lot of times companies just throw people in the pool and expect them to swim. Uh, but we give them a framework where, where we walk them through the Encino perspective on that. And uh, A, you're just giving them good tools that they can lean on. And people uh, take challenging situations with more confidence if they have tools they can lean on. But second of all, it's a cultural immersion, right? We're talking about, hey, you get Encino and you hear our core values, but this is what it means to be a leader in Encino. And we're going to spend six months and we're going to pull you out of the field. I mean, if you're a consultant and you're a leader and I pull you out of the field to invest in your management, right? I'm, I'm not I'm not recognizing any revenue on your, on your hours, right? But that's an investment we have to make to where those people have tools they can use and they understand how we do it. So that's been uh, that's been a great program as well. The uh, the hidden benefit of that that I don't think we necessarily anticipated is really good for the manager on the individual level to get those skills. And you have to do it. It's really good for them to understand the culture. But another aspect of that has been the uh, cohesiveness that they get within their peer group. Because you have 30 managers who now are navigating problems on a day-to-day -day basis. They get to know one another. And there's a little bit of a cultural element, like we can solve some of this stuff on our level, right? Um, so seeing them band together and seeing that cohesiveness, you know, they do get-togethers, you know, happy hours, stuff like that, where just making sure that they stay connected. Because ultimately, that front line of leadership in a high-growth company is where, where you flip a switch and go bigger, or that's where things break down. Because ultimately, your executive team can only scale so much, right? So for us, that's been a really great investment. And so in addition to attitude, what other character traits are you looking for when you're making hiring decisions and when you're trying to evaluate potential? I think um, for us, uh, you know, attitude, uh, coachability, uh -huh. right? Um, we, 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 hear, we talk about a motor or horsepower, which is just the ability uh, to keep grinding. I think I look a lot for, for selflessness and in a, a team focus. And then how about where you're finding talent? I mean, so it seems like a ton of folks are from UNC Wilmington. Um, like what is the university doing to prepare graduates to succeed at Encino and how has Encino tried to kind of develop that relationship and partnership with the university? So they have uh, some, some technical classes that have given people the frameworks they need to, to succeed here, which is pretty cool to see them add those. Uh, my organization, there's a sales and marketing center where we, if they have a contest, like a speaking contest, we'll provide coaches, we'll provide judges that go over and participate. So there's a really neat alignment there. Um, and then we've also uh, ramped up our university recruiting efforts. So we send recruiters to, to Raleigh, to Atlanta, to other places, and say, look, you, you, you can do software, then you can do it by the beach. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty winning message, right? So uh, we also focus there, uh, try to bring in cohorts from those universities.
And you mentioned transitioning veterans. Is that an area of focus from a hiring perspective? There's a few programs. Uh, we partner with an organization called TechQual uh, that helps veterans transition uh, to, to the private sector. Uh, the Honor Foundation is a very focused organization that helps special operations veterans transition to the private uh, sector, puts them through essentially a, um, a, a three to four month process where they teach them all the basics of the private sector, how to prepare a resume, right? how, do you, how do you show up looking sharp in a civilian suit, how do you interview, how do you quantify what you did in, the, in uniform to civilian terms. Um, so we've hired people from the Honor Foundation as well. Um, look, the, the military is a great melting pot. You have people from all kinds of socioeconomic status, all parts of the country. Um, so when you pull people from that melting pot, uh, this pretty neat injection of diversity of experience, um, of diversity of, uh, of thought, and ultimately uh, just overall diversity into the company. So we, we, we spent some time there as well. Excellent. Um, and so transitioning to culture, how would you describe the culture and the core values at Encino? We talk a lot about empowerment, right? And, and we, we have core values that we talk about, but I think it can be summarized in, in empowering the employee. Um, they know if, if you're consulting, if you're in support, and you just need to make a call, and, and, and if you make that call, it's to the benefit of the customer, right? Uh, we talk about innovation, reputation, and speed, and that, that's kind of been our driving force. That's how we're going to transform this industry. Um, and you think about reputation, just do the right thing for the company's reputation, right? Um, so that culture of empowerment, I, I used to, again, being a consultant and you get on a plane, you fly it on Monday and you come back on Thursday. Um, you, you can't you can't do that effectively if you're not empowered to make calls, if you're not empowered um, to, um, to, uh, to support your customer well. The other thing that I love that we've done here, uh, we talk a lot about, uh, we don't say no, we say we can if. And I think there's a, a, a cultural aspect to that, right? If you say, no, I can't do that, it's too hard. Well, okay. But if you say, whether that's to a customer or whether to an internal teammate, you know, we can do that if I get more resources, right? We can do that if we relook at our priorities for this releases roadmap, right? We can do that if I look at how I, I, I align my team on the market. Um, that's a very different conversation, right? It's the difference between with your kid um, that, that I've seen as a, as a dad, and I'm still trying to figure out how to be a dad. Uh, it's the difference between being uh, in a conversation with your kid and saying, don't be selfish. But what if you say, the Glovers are grateful? Does that make sense? Uh -huh. Like, please be grateful, right? That's a more positive message. Yeah. And so that message of we can if has been a part of the culture. Uh, Pierre, Pierre pulled all the consultants aside in year one. That was like four of us, but it was year one. <laughs> uh, and he pulled us aside and said, you can't say no anymore. Say we can if, right? And, and that I joke about the WCI factor. Uh, but if you take that, and it, that's not a bad way to engage with your peers. Mm -hmm. It's not a get bad way to engage with your, your team members or your customers, because ultimately you're always coming that from a positive perspective where I hear your concern. I understand this is important. Let's try to solve that problem. But it's also realistic saying, I'm not going to make a blind promise. Mm -hmm. If I do that for you, we may have to not do some other things, but I'm going to empower you. I'm empowered. Let's figure this out. Right. So that's a big piece of the culture and that's a big piece of uh, what we still preach. And so I imagine when you joined a couple dozen people, um, the culture really spreads through osmosis. It's a very intimate organization where the senior leaders are able to touch everybody. Now, over 900 people, how do you um, make sure that the culture still permeates through the entire organization? You know, I think, um, and this is a, a lesson I learned, you asked earlier about mentors from the military. I, I learned from one of my first uh, company commanders, a guy, a guy named Blair, so Blair Sokol, and he commanded, say, 150, 200-person company. And I said, sir, how do you lead 200 people well? And his, his point was, I have to set a good example, I need to lead them well, but really my focus is is leading five lieutenants and, and a first sergeant and a gunny well. If I lead those seven people well 
and that's where I focus, right? They're going to lead their their people well, and that's going to cascade down throughout the organization. Uh, about eighty percent, and, and it's, it's always dangerous quoting a study, but about eighty percent of uh, individuals' day to day experience is based on the way they interact with their direct manager, right? So if I take good care of my directs, I lead them well, and then they take care of their people, that cascades down. And I think what we've done as we've continued to grow is Pierre sets a great example, right? And he's, he's a huge personality and people love Pierre. He focuses time on his executive team. And then I focus my time on my leadership team. And, and from that, um, the individual contributor who is where the rubber meets the road, they're the one writing code. They're the one doing the demo. They're the one fixing the support ticket. If they can look at their leader and say, this person's invested in me, they lead me well, right? They give me good feedback. They give me great goals that I can, uh, that are challenging, but, but, but that I feel like I could attain if I work hard, then they're going to have a positive experience. And that's how you preserve that culture. Transitioning to scaling a sales organization, you've basically taken it from zero to a couple hundred people. What lessons have you learned there, particularly in terms of international expansion and leading a global organization? I think the challenge during those times of rapid growth, um, you have to do it all, but if you try to do too much, you're not going to do anything well. Uh, and I, I've, I've messed that up in the past, but I say, man, here's all the things we're going to fix. And it feels really daunting. I think you have to really pick what, what, are, what, are, the, what are the priority things we're going to do to get better. And in a sales organization during a, a time of rapid growth, um, look, I have to hit the number so I get a swing at, swing at the ball next year, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, I have to make the organization better. And I think there's uh, an art to figuring out where do I focus my time across those two things. If I just scramble and focus on providing growth this year, um, I'll have a great year and I'll high five at company kickoff, but in two to three years, the organization might not be where it needs to be maturity wise. And it's, 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 it's more fun to chase deals, right? And it's more fun to go see customers and it's more fun to do that. But if you don't have a little bit of discipline and focus, focusing yourself on, um, you know, how, how do we report, right? What's mm -hmm. our sales process look like? Um, are we uh, getting the right experts that we need into the company um, to, to make this new product launch successful? Um, I think there's kind of those two threads and, and part of the art, and, and, and I, I won't pretend to have, have done a perfect job at that, right? And I, for me, when I sit down at the end of the day and I say, where am I focusing my time? And I, I question myself sometimes, right? Do I, you know, okay, so I spent all this time this week on this infrastructure thing or in this organizational thing, it's really important, right? I need it in two to three years, but man, I got to get the number this year, right? And so I think that's part of the art. Um, I don't know if you, if you ever figure out the perfect balance, <laughs> let me know because I haven't figured it out, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so what is the long-term vision for Encino? Like, what do you think the company can look like in 10 to 20 years? We've always thought that uh, we can we can transform the industry with uh, by focusing on innovation, reputation, and speed, and we remain really focused on that. Uh, we continue to make aggressive uh, investments in our product. Um, and uh, one of our biggest areas of focus is Nick, which is the ability, uh, if you take what we've done in that story I described earlier of a customer who, um, who, who can apply for a loan, and then in that same system, the bankers can underwrite it, approve it, service it, et cetera. Um, Nick is taking that process and injecting intelligence into that. And it may be intelligence that helps uh, the customer have a better experience on the front end. It may help that underwriter make a more educated decision about uh, the risk or about that credit. Um, it may help a closer better forecast that close date because we said it's going to close on Friday. I want it to close on Friday. Um, but 
the, the future uh, of, of intelligence applied to, to that end-to-end -end process um, is where, where we think we'll continue to focus as we continue to uh, chase, chase the transformation of this industry. Great. Um, and then so transitioning to more of the uh, of kind of the personal side of things. Um, so how do you try to balance being a husband and a father of three with this demanding professional career, particularly one that involves a lot of travel? Yeah. And again, that's something that, um, I'm, I'm still trying to figure <laughs> out. Um, look, I, I'm, a, I'm a family man first. Uh, my wife, Heather, who I spoke earlier, is is uh, is, is the best thing um, in my life and has been since I was a, a knucklehead senior at the Naval Academy. Um, she supported me during uh, four combat deployments, um, made bigger sacrifices than I made because when you're when you're deployed, uh, you're gone and you get the, the, the daily kind of spiritual paycheck of, of, of leading the team and seeing the people succeed and in, 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 in feeding off that message, uh, that mission. Uh, but, but, you know, the, the spouse and the family who are back here just deal with a ton of uncertainty. Um, so Heather's, Heather's received those phone calls, right, from buddies saying, hey, Josh got hurt. Uh, she pushed me around Walter Reed for, for just about a year in a wheelchair. Uh, she didn't frequently remind me of that. She's learned to remind me of that one or two times. Uh, but, she, you know, the, they come first. And my, our three kids, um, you know, I, I would hope to, uh, as I look back on my life, think about my man, my life as, uh, as, as being a family man first. Uh, work and Encino are deeply important to me. I hopefully you've heard some of that. Um, balancing that is, is, a daily, is a daily challenge, right? Uh, because uh, I'm really proud of what we're doing. Um, as we look to transform this industry, there's a lot more work to do. Um, for me, if I'm not, if I'm not working, I'm with family, uh, and that's just a decision that I've made. Um, there's time to, you know, have, have time consuming hobbies later. Uh, but I have this limited window while my kids are here. Um, I, I think, I think one of the biggest pieces of misinformation about parenting is that it's all about quality time. I think I think I owe it to my kids when I'm with them that the time is quality, right? That's just table stakes. Like I don't need to be messing around on my phone. Mm -hmm. um, but I think um, I think kids need quantity of time, right? Because you as a parent don't get to pick what those special moments are, right? You as a parent don't get to pick when your eight, eight year old's gonna want to talk to you about some seemingly silly social thing at school, right? I mean that 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 just happens when it happens, and I can make sure I don't miss that by by preserving as much quantity time, uh, but. Yeah, I just said, right, uh, seven offices, five countries. I have to get out there and see the people. So I navigate that if I'm, if I'm not working at Encino. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm with the family. And when I'm here, um, I do my best to, to be as involved as I can, um, you know, dropping them off at school. Uh, taking them to practice. Um, I, I think, look, I don't, I don't miss the games and things, but I think there's a lot of things between the games uh, that I try to be a part of uh, and, and just ultimately uh, make the most out of this limited window of time while we have the kids in our house. So, absolutely. But it's, a, it's absolutely a daily struggle. And if there's anything about entrepreneurship and about uh, the pace we work at that, that you know, I sometimes question myself on is I, am I balancing that well? Um, but I just come back to, you know, I, the more I can just be there with them, uh, you know, I, I want them to remember that. Mm -hmm. so. And is there anything that you've learned about parenting or anything that surprised you as you've gone through this process? On one hand, you can have a massive impact. On the other hand, those kids are, are going to be who they are. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I think about my kids, uh, they're, they're eight, seven and three. And, uh, you teach them lessons every day, right? And you teach them about, falling through on things about, you know, having integrity, about being selfless, but their personality just is what it is. So I think, um, that's been fun to see, 
right? Because because uh, you want to help teach them good moral frameworks and teach them to be, uh, you know, a good neighbor and good family member. Uh, the same point, uh, man. That nature versus nurture thing. I mean, they, they come out. You know, they're all so different and uh, they're all so awesome. Um, I think one thing that I've learned is that it's easy to say like I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna be more patient with my kids or I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to them more on their level and all that. I've just found the more I can spend time with them and the more I can get down on their level with them, uh, the more I can, I can do that. Right. So for me, it's about, uh, forcing myself to be there, right. About spending time with them and, and letting them kind of pick the path. Sometimes I go, Hey, it's that we're going to go do something fun. Um, the more I can say like, what would you, you know, how do you want to spend Saturday? You'd be surprised what, what they want to do and how they want to spend their time. Right. Um, so I, I think like letting them, um, speak up, right. Helps because, because, I've learned from them, like, hey, I think it's special to go to whatever, go putt-putt or go run the boat. Uh, but sometimes, you know, my, my son's like, Dad, I just want you to read books to me today. Right? That's awesome, right? So let's do that. Well, that, I think, is the perfect place to begin to kind of wrap up. So, Josh, I want to thank you for your service for our country, and I want to thank you for all of your incredible leadership locally here in Wilmington. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a blast today. I always look forward to these conversations, and I learn a lot. So with that, just one last quick closing question for you. If you had to pick one, what is your favorite restaurant here locally in Wilmington? Uh, that's a uh, that's a really good question. Uh, my, my wife my wife's from Arizona, as I said, and I'm from Texas, so uh, we have a we have a, a deep love for for Mexican food. I'd have to go with K38. Uh, you, you can't lose there; it's pretty consistent, and uh, uh, it's the best it's the best uh, Mexican food you can get here in Eastern North Carolina for sure. Perfect. We'll leave it there.